welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast, brought to you by Sports Info Solutions. Coming in for our usual host, Matt Manacharian, who is off skiing and having a grand old time. I'm Alex Vigderman, the Director of Football Analytics for SIS. I'm here with my buddies and co-workers, James Weaver and Bryce Rossler. We're going to talk about some draft topics, starting off with sort of a general discussion about the value of draft picks and how that sort of enters into trading and, and that sort of thing. And then we'll go on to talk about some of the players in this draft, in particular, those who sort of stand out from a statistical perspective. But first off, by way of introduction, in part because this might affect the quality of the the podcast being recorded. Bryce, how is puppy training going? It's certainly going. The dog Actually, is also going, I suppose. But Yeah, the, the dog is definitely going. I just got a text from the breeder asking how she was doing. She is very lively and playful, contrary to what they set the expectation for, which is that she would be depressed for about a week after being kidnapped from her mother and father and littermates. She is doing well with potty training in the sense that she understands when the leash goes on that it's time to go to the bathroom. But what she doesn't understand is that we have to wait until we are outside to go to the bathroom. She's had several incidents where I go to put the leash on her and take her out and she goes on the floor right as we walk out the door or she goes in the hallway of the apartment and that is not the desired behavior a real gen zer looking for instant gratification can't can't tolerate that extra extra time yeah i suppose so she is also bad about urinating outside and then coming back and pooping inside minutes after she was just outside but i'm not sure how to fix that all right well that sounds fun and for for other people's enjoyment in terms of visualizing what breed are we talking bernese mountain dog and a tiny one which is adorable well tiny is overstating but tiny for now yeah she is supposed to be probably 80 to 90 pounds at six months she's eight weeks right now so she will grow very quickly pretty good and james do you have any exciting things going on in your life Nothing too much, just enjoying this time of the sports calendar with the NCAA basketball championships wrapping up. Although as underwhelming the championship was, we did have a good Final Four game. And then for those listening right now, it's Masters Week. So super excited to watch that and see who comes out on top. I guess it's probably for the best that it didn't line up quite this way. But certainly a couple of weeks ago, we had the like World Baseball Classic and the NCAA tournament starting and, and like all that kind of stuff was sort of like hitting crescendo. And I, I can't imagine if we also had the the masters in involved in that, that would have been a hell of a weekend. So it's good to have a little bit of a, a break of those things. This is always a always a great time with even I forgot to uh, opening day with last week as well. So always a great yeah. time on the sports calendar and then coming up on the draft here. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. So we I wrote an article that was actually sort of like a, a rehash of an article that our dearly departed to Atlanta, uh, Stephen Palachik wrote last year, which was basically reimagining draft pick value curves through the lens of our total points metric. So for years, there's been the Jimmy Johnson model of valuing draft picks. And that's just sort of like a quantitative, or like, I guess not quantitative in, in that sense, but like a numeric way of valuing draft picks so that you can sort of be in 
talking the same language when making trades and that sort of thing. And we wanted to use total points, our player value metric, to sort of revalue those positions. And one of the what that basically results in is a curve that represents the value of picks, and it's represented. Stephen did it originally in terms of expected two-year production in terms of total points for each draft slot. And for this article, I, I also sort of expanded it to each year between one and four. So you can co- sort of see how the slope changes over time. Although, honestly, one of the, the big findings was that it was kind of not that different over the course of the four years. The other thing that's kind of interesting about the way that that Stephen had originally done the model and that I sort of reproduced was that it treats the first round or so of the draft slightly differently like it, it actually sort of like a blending of two models because we see that there's such a, a, a substantial increase in both the subjective value and also the actual production of the top picks in the draft so it's sort of steeper at the top and then flattens out at the back end and that flattening out of the back end of course results in a lot of the sort of common findings from using draft curves which is like trading down is a better proposition because there's not that much of a drop-off in value past the first handful of picks. So that article was was partially just to sort of rebuild that draft curve with updated data, but also to sort of analyze past traits. So looking at sort of a couple of, of flavors of things, the first being just sort of first-round draft pick trades from, from last year, and you see sort of an unsurprising finding, which is that every trade involves the team trading down getting more value than the team trading up which we can talk about whether that's like a problem or not i think i actually think that getting you know the the team that trades up should in general pay a premium for the for the right to basically move up i would think so i'm not surprised to see like a small value difference between the the two sides but the the one that i found really interesting in terms of trying to estimate the value of picks was talking about trading future first round picks, which there was a big run of those in 2021 involving Trey Lance and being being the most sort of prominent of those, but also the Dolphins trading up to get Jalen Waddell and the Bears trading up to get Justin Fields. And if you think about those trades, like it's difficult to actually value a future pick because the teams should have different understandings of like how to discount time. You know, the Texans are in a situation where they could use as much talent as they can get, and maybe they have to wait a year to get an elite talent, but they'd prefer to get any elite talent. Whereas a team like the Rams a couple of years ago doesn't really care that much about that, so they might not value a future pick as much. And what I found was that teams were basically valuing future first round picks like third to fifth round picks in the current draft, which is a pretty substantial reduction in value over the course of one year and you know that's just a few trades so it's hard to know if that's actually representative of of the league as a whole but it was certainly like a really interesting finding so i have two thoughts the first is on the difference in value received versus the value given for teams moving up and i think that this isn't necessarily a problem because you have the pick you are moving up to and there is conceivably competition for moving up to that pick whereas that that pick is unique in the sense that there are certain players that are going to be available there or if it's at the time of the draft that are actually there 
as opposed to theoretically there. And if you don't make the move, you could conceivably lose out on the player you were trading up for. So I don't necessarily think it's a problem. You you could still argue that like teams maybe shouldn't do it, but I don't think it's an unexpected outcome necessarily. So to sort of go off on on that a little bit, like I I definitely agree. I think that you draft pick trades are not an auction, but in a sense, any free market type thing can operate like that. Where basically, like the person who pays for a given product that had competition to purchase it is going to be like there's a concept of the winner's curse. Basically, like the person who wins the auction pays the most because they had to sort of out bid the other people involved and so yeah i i totally agree and and that might be something that's sort of been a nuance that's been sort of missing in how people talk about draft pick trades is they they make these comparisons they say oh they the trade the team trading back got an extra fifth round pick of value when they did so and the some of that value isn't actually sort of part of of the system in the sense that like the team who's moving up always probably should pay a little bit more. We just don't really know. I don't really know how we would evaluate what that number is. And so it makes it kind of difficult to talk about trades from that perspective with with that kind of aspect built in. But it is something to think about when you're looking at these differences in value. Like some of that difference in value is just sort of the cost of doing business. Yeah. And, and the other part of this is it's not like actual money is being exchanged here like if if you and i are bartering for something and i want 10 more dollars and you have 10 dollars like you can just give it to me but when we're talking about draft picks like these are fixed positions and mm-hmm. you might if if this team wants a second rounder and a third rounder like you're you're kind of stuck like it yours might be more valuable but it's it's what you have and you end up having to forfeit that and excess value can be given up in that way too. Yeah, that's an interesting note. Although I guess if you're if you're including like late picks or picks in or even late picks in future years, like that gives you a decent amount of like small tweaks yeah. you can make to value, but you're right. That like and this is this is going to sound kind of dumb because we're, we're sort of like talking about real football and I'm going to bring fantasy football into it. But like I'm picturing it it's as similar to if you're in a fantasy draft and you're drafting at the end either the beginning or the end of the dra- of the round and you have fixed locations and so if you want a player who is valued sort of somewhere in between those you have to be willing to give up some value because those are just the fixed locations you're working with yeah especially especially in earlier rounds because there's less precision with which you can manipulate yeah the values to to get to the benchmark you need to get to james any thoughts on any of that that part totally makes sense i mean i'm looking at our chart now and just seeing the you know, our the total points draft pick chart now and like just seeing the difference between like rounds one and two to two to three to three to four, it's hard to pull up and bring out that exact value when you have those set positions in each of the drafts. So that totally makes sense. I, I would say in terms of the whole discussion about trading up in general, I I, I agree with this aspect of having to pay the premium to move up because you're moving up and it gives you I think that kind of brings in your your choice of pick of who you want. I think my gripe is more of who these teams are selecting when they move up in the draft, but that's a whole different part of the conversation, I guess. Yeah, and and certainly the the trades, you know, talking about the the trades that involve those future picks, like the Trey Lance deal, we don't have 
the right answer on this yet, but like that certainly is looking not great. <laughs> Whereas the, G- G- the you know Jalen Waddle deal looks pretty interesting, and yeah, they gave up a lot of value. I mean, they they basically that one extra pick in the future, like the difference in value of the other picks, makes that pick look like it was they were valuing as like roughly a fifth rounder, which is just feels kind of wild to discount a first round pick that much from year to year. But like they got a player that definitely was like limited in access and Bryce's point about like knowing specifically what player you're looking at like you know you know sure you don't want to draft for need but you know this player at this position with this skill set with your current roster structure exists and yes you could have some pick in the future but you don't know when that is you don't know if you're going to have the job by then like mm-hmm. there are a lot of aspects of the situation that are difficult to project out and so knowing exactly what you're dealing with at the moment has some value. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I just think it comes down to the whole, you know, like you said, like team fit. And then just seeing like, if you are going to trade up for a quarterback, like making sure you have that roster in place where you know you have like, this guy needs to be the guy. But even in that case, I'd argue it's it still might not be worth doing that. But yeah, there's also the, and, and you could very well argue that this is a an undesirable behavior in general managers but different teams value different prospects differently so there are conceivably circumstances in which one team is willing to pay more to acquire a certain prospect than another team now i don't know the frequency with which that occurs and that's probably like we don't have any insight into that right like we don't we don't have where gms rank guys on the draft boards but I would say that would be a problematic component to this, as opposed to like you have a a quarterback and he's like the consensus one or two guy and you move up and you trade a bunch of assets to get him and the value ends up being lopsided in the team who traded down's favor. But I would imagine that this probably occurs more in later rounds. Like once you get into like the like the third or the fourth round, we see this happen a lot. Like teams trading up to you know, trading like a third and a future fourth to get a guy they like. So I would be interested to see, like it, it sort of broken down by round almost to see what, like what the percentage of surplus value being gained by teams trading down is. Yeah. So you, you hit on a couple things that are kind of relevant. The first being, this is all based on historical results, right? So in a world where teams don't hit on their top picks because they made a bad eval and they traded up for a guy who doesn't work out like that affects this number in a in a meaningful way and and we're trying to account for that like we're using what's called like a trimmed mean which is basically like clipping off the top and bottom 20 percent outcomes basically saying like really good results and really bad results are not what we expect we expect to sort of like middle of the road type outcomes for players and we're also including sort of like adjacent picks at, when, when making that calculation. So like the, you know, pick 32 is also including results from picks 31, 30 and, and 33 and 34, et cetera. So trying to sort of like smooth out some of those results that can kind of make quantitative measure like this kind of funky. But you do see, we actually did see a little bit of, of what you're talking about, like a round based result when Steven was doing this last year, which was that like, the picks just past 
the the end of the first round and the end of the second round were performing a little bit better than the picks sort of around them. And part of that is like, you know, especially when you have those, the gaps from day to day, you have teams trading up and whatever. So you're not ending up with those, like the worst team is taking the first player in, in that round. And so they don't have as good of a situation and that sort of thing. So I do think there is a little bit of, of that sort of effect of round structure. The trouble is that also when you get towards the middle of the draft, like the comp picks and all that kind of stuff sort of screw with the round structure and it's not as predictable. The one thing that I think we, so we've already seen a trade up into the first overall pick and there's been kind of rumblings of other possible trade ups to get. I mean, now, you know, there's a handful of quarterbacks that people might be interested in. And actually just one sort of offhand mention, like this draft pick curve probably could be sort of modified to account better for the difference between quarterbacks and non-quarterbacks. Like taking a quarterback at pick four has a different expectation than taking a non-quarterback at pick four. But a lot of that sort of gets smoothed out within this curve. So this is just sort of looking in general, but certainly like if you're trying to get your franchise quarterback your value curve probably looks different. But in terms of of what teams might be doing this year, James, you looked into it a little bit for some of the teams who have that kind of option available. Yeah, so there's definitely been rumblings of a potential team moving up to that third spot where Arizona currently sits in terms of taking either an Anthony Richardson or a Will Levis type third quarterback. And two teams that I brought up and wanted to take a look at the trade value chart for were the Raiders and the Titans. Both these teams obviously have their tenured quarterbacks on roster now with the Raiders having Garoppolo and the Titans having Tannehill. But taking a look at the future, obviously you hear about Levis and Richardson being potential quote-unquote projects. So for having the chance for them to sit behind those quarterbacks for a year and take up the reins eventually. So I want to take a look at the value and the Raiders currently sit with the seventh pick and According to our chart, on a two-year total points projected value, that Cardinals pick at three is worth 58.8 total points, and the Raiders' seventh pick is worth 51.3. So assuming first-round trade swaps, there's about seven points of difference that need to be accounted for in a potential trade. And, and taking a look at it at a fair point of view, this would be worth roughly the 141st overall pick, which is the fifth-round pick for the Raiders. If you're paying a premium for it, that at 11.1 total points, that's looking at like a fourth round, their fourth round pick. And then if you're looking even more of a premium, the 70th overall pick, which is a third round for the Raiders is 18.4 points. And that's in terms of this year's value. If you factor in next year's value with a potential discounted rate of 50%, next year's would be worth like a mid third overall pick to make that up that difference or premiumly a mid second round point, which would be 12 and a half points of that middling 24. You take half that because the 12. So just sort of, Thinking that through, it sounds to me like those more extreme premium versions sound more like what we would actually see. Like, I don't think there's any shot that they're they're, they're dealing a fifth round pick to move up a few slots to get up to three. Right. Right. Yeah. There's no point, or at least, yeah, there's no chance because then every team would be uh, not yeah. at the Cardinals or trying to make that trade up. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you factor in like something like that and then there'd be something in that fourth or third even 18 points different from seven you know and as well with the discounter rate we we projected a 50 percent discounter rate which i know you kind of looked at saying that's not been the case historically and teams have done a little bit more than that so yeah it would definitely certainly be around that third round range yeah i i do wonder 
with all with the fact that all three of those trades from 2021 sort of occurred in a bubble together mm. i do wonder how that plus the way that the rams have sort of treated f- future picks and that sort of thing I, I do i'm curious how the market for future first round picks sort of flows over time and i think that the opportunity for teams to move up into that like three four range or maybe not four with with the colts on the clock but you know that's that sort of range i that is an opportunity to see if teams are going to throw you know dangle that that future first or if they're going to stick with the current draft yeah and and just for reference i think the closest historical example would be the jets trade up for darnold because they took him at three in 2018 and they traded up with the Colts, and the Colts got six back and two second rounders that year, and a future second rounder. Yeah, that's that's way more, more than what. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that that really does to me speak to the thing that you were saying of like knowing a that it's a quarterback, and b that it's like a player that you're particularly interested in in theory. That drives so much of it. You get a sort of a different kind of trade often towards the back end of the first round of teams that are sort of coming back in to the first to get whether it's quarterback that falls or, or that sort of thing right and and so i think that those are really the scenarios where the value curve kind of gets thrown off a bit i think the middle of the first round is less so like that because you don't have the players who have like suddenly surprisingly fallen and you don't have those like top flight quarterbacks that people are sort of jumping up to get no agree i i certainly agree with the premium of the difference of quarterback and non-quarterback, you know whether it's worth it. They traded up for Sam Darnold, so that's yes, uh, that's the great. You know, you don't know that in advance, right? Or you just don't give up the picks and stay where you are and wait for Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson to fall to you. Yeah, the problem is there's also you know there's plenty there's plenty of like the reasons that players fall are theoretically rational, and so there are. You know, Josh Allen, and we'll talk about, we probably will talk about this in the context of like Will Levis, but like the players who fall, fall for reasons. And those reasons often result in that player not producing like what you would want them to. And Aaron Rodgers. Well, yeah, that's right. So, so there's Aaron Rodgers and then there's Brady Quinn, right? Like there's plenty of, of versions of, players who fall and it works out great and players who fall and it, there's a reason why they fell Malik Willis right and obviously he's had one year so we don't really know but so it's it's tough to sit there and see a guy that you think you are projecting to be good and and have the discipline to say like no I don't want to overspend to get a player that I don't have a ton of confidence in or that 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 in general you know has some risk associated with it but like if you don't end up with that player like what confidence do you have in whatever else you got so like yeah it's it's a tough spot and i'm glad to not be on the inside of that decision i think yeah fomo is probably a very real thing i would imagine Mm. just like if there's a guy you really like and you start to see him drop a little bit and he maybe becomes easier to acquire because the position at which you'd be taking him is falling and he gets drafted and becomes like an all pro and you want to die on the inside every day. That is potentially a, a phenomenon, albeit not a, not a rational one, right? Yeah, I think there's, yeah, I think that's probably true. I think 
and we can kind of talk about this in a second with with sort of positional value type stuff there's probably also some amount of value of like you're saying like watching him become an all pro like there's a sort of salience to a player being really good and and you can sort of picture that in a way that is true for certain positions and and certain players so there probably are even just like guys who were like a big deal in college right like i'm sure that this was a thing with the with tebow where like he was so popular and and well known and whatever that people just kind of had this thing in their brain it's like oh man like what what if i made it with him and and that sort of thing i don't know i just think about it in terms of the the quote-unquote at bats you get like if you're trading up three like you said if that donald like yeah. two second round picks in the first round you give up three cracks at you know finding a all pro left tackle or an all pro you know defensive lineman or something along those lines which uh, honestly probably have more stable 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 total point rates over time like i don't know i i would just rather probably take the at bats and i would having the quote-unquote unless i have like the whole roster set ready to go to trade up for quarterback yeah, I think I think the one thing I think I in general agree that taking more bites at the apple for you can use more metaphors or whatever is a good strategy because there's a lot of uncertainty in how these players will project to the NFL. But at the top of the draft, everything that we have suggests that those top those like elite blue chip players do generally return value that's that's commensurate with that and to Bryce's point earlier, like there's a limited a number of those, and you know that you know that ahead of time. And so, if you're trying to get some of those kinds of players, I'm less bothered by trading up than if you're trading, you know, if you're if you're giving up, yeah, a, a decent premium to move in to get somebody at 16. This is this is the old insurance salesman trope of of you're paying for peace of mind, right? Mm. Like if yeah. you're if you're moving up high in the draft. Maybe you're getting, maybe you're paying a little bit more than you should, but you feel confident, very confident that what you're getting in return will be valuable to some extent. And it might be a lemon anyway, but yeah, you're right that there's something to be said for that. And, and, and like it feels good to, to make those deals and people will, will praise your draft because you got you know, X player that you didn't have access to before and that sort of thing. And in a world where you don't have very long expectations for your job tenure and that sort of thing, like mm. being able to to get a little bit of goodwill that comes from that as well also probably enters into it. Yeah, certainly. Having those the, the tenure stuff you were saying, like you don't know what your job security is looking like anyway. Hence yeah, you know, some of those examples there. That's where the the discounting rate of of future picks, I think, is I don't know about rational, but it's certainly like understandable because you don't know, like, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be there in three years. Yeah. The next, let the next bozo deal with it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So before we move on to talking about some of the players in the draft, I just want to mention that over the last few weeks, we've been getting ready for the draft and, and as part of this podcast, but also we have a website, nfldraft.sportsinfosolutions.com that we're taking a lot of the stats that we'll be talking about shortly and not only is it a bunch of our stats accumulated on there, including team pages that have sort of like team, your roster construction and how well the team has performed in terms of offensive and defensive production and some positional rankings and some s- 
sort of win estimator type stuff of like how well you did relative to your underlying metrics. And not only that, but hundreds of scouting reports written by our staff at SIS of people who have been watching games for the last couple of years. And all that's for free up on the site. So definitely check it out. And we'll be talking about some of the things that are on that site in a second. So let's talk about if we're going to use bad puns, we'll say they're they're all stat players instead of all star players. So part of the idea of the work that we do as a company is to sort of blend, particularly when it comes to the draft, is sort of blend scouting with stats and not present them as opposing forces, but complementary forces. Like when we had the football rookie handbook, which is sort of the original version of this draft site, we had the stats on one side and the scouting report on the other side, and you could basically view them simultaneously and and see, oh, this guy was, the scouting report says that he uh, did not have very good hands or or he made concentration drops, but actually his on-target catch rate was pretty good. And that's just a, a, a representation of, you know, when you're scouting, you're you're not seeing every single snap all the time. And oftentimes there are these really salient moments that affect the way that you view that player that are captured in the statistical record a little bit better. And on the inverse, there's plenty of times where a guy will present a trait that is something that's projectable, but like his performance doesn't necessarily manifest it that way, whether it's because the context around him didn't really support it or he was hampered in some way at the time and in a way that he would not be hampered in the future. So these are really two things that we want to be able to, to sort of blend together and and use as a complementary thing as opposed to saying one is better. Does anybody have any any, any sort of general thoughts on the, the scouting report versus versus stats thing before we go in? Yeah, I just want to reiterate what Matt would say if he were here, <laughs> which is that you have these two separate evaluative methods and arguably the biggest value is that when they align and form a consensus, that's where you typically find less risk is when a guy's statistical profile and his film profile match up is when you tend to hit on people the most, as opposed to any disparity between the two is is where you start to have uncertainty and that these things not always aligning isn't necessarily a bad thing because there's information to be gained from not having that overlap, right? Yeah. So I, I hope I express that well. Yeah, enough, that I think Matt'll so. listen that Matt'll listen next week and he won't he won't get mad at me for misquoting him, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think the other thing that he would probably say is that scouting reports are also data. It's just textual data. So they're they're not as disconnected from each other as you might think. But certainly in terms of a player whose stats align with his scouting grade, one of our top players by grade in this class is also one of the players who is at the top of a lot of his positional leaderboards, and that is Bijan Robinson, the running back from Texas. He has really been, as speaking again from a fantasy perspective, I'm in the fantasy football league where basically people were falling over themselves to trade for access to the first overall pick in our dynasty draft to be able to take him. And he is really a, a combination of, of physicality and speed that you're not seeing very often. And it really shows in in just sort of like how he's all over the running back leaderboards, particularly from an elusiveness and, and productivity perspective. You're in a dynasty league. 
I didn't know you were a pervert. I mean, <laughs> I will say that I'm not uh, I'm not on the like extreme level of involvement, but yes, I'm I'm in sort of multiple leagues with the same people that are sort of like different flavors, basically. But yeah, the the thirst for Bijan is is real. And we, you know, the conversation about positional value and where he gets picked is interesting. Like as an Eagles fan, people were mocking the Eagles taking him at 10 or also at the end of the draft, at the end of the first round. And like, I think you could reasonably argue that the Eagles wouldn't do either and that they would wait into the second round. But it does seem like this is the kind of player who someone decides is going to take in the first round. Yeah, I would think so. I used to. It's interesting that you bring up the Eagles because I used to be of the mindset that you probably shouldn't take a running back in the first round, but could if it was like, quote unquote, a luxury pick. But I think I've come off of that recently. There have been some failures just anecdotally, like the the Chiefs probably would have liked to have their Clyde Edwards Hilaire pick back. And they took him, I think, 32nd, right? That said, I agree that some team probably will take him in the first round. There's a lot to like about him because he's just a extremely well-rounded player. He has a statistical profile that is consistent with his film, so I think there's some certainty there. There's a lot of value in having a guy who can run routes out of the backfield and be productive, which at Texas he proved he could do. He was eighth in points earned per route among power five running backs last year in addition to being a really good runner the vision is really impressive i probably wouldn't take him in the first round personally but you know early second round go for it yeah i i think talking about you know the certainty that comes with a mix of scouting and analytics having similar opinions also having like multiple years of production gives you certainty this was one thing that i was feeling particularly when it came to like trevor lawrence a couple years ago that like having multiple years of even if it's not like outstanding production every year and of course Lawrence had quite a career but like he had years that were more outstanding than others like just showing that you can perform at a high level and not you know being a one year wonder is 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 obviously different when it's like your platform year versus like the year before and then you have a downturn afterwards but just like in general being a high level producer for multiple years gives you a lot of certainty and like will anderson being a, another example of like yeah this year was not as awesome as has he had already shown but like being a top level producer at a top level program is still informative there's also this is a minor thing but there's also a recent phenomenon due to COVID where a lot of players coming out yeah. are older prospects, right? Like we're seeing like 23, 24, 25-year-old prospects sometimes, whereas in the past that was not really a thing that happened too often. And Bijan is still really young. Like he, he played three seasons at Texas, played sparingly his freshman year, but he's 21 this year, doesn't have a lot of quote-unquote wear on his tires and i think that's something that probably excites teams as well i was on this show a few weeks ago talking about like aging curves and like that basically from productivity perspective you start declining like almost immediately and as a running back you start declining more extremely almost immediately and so yeah being a little bit younger a little bit less wear on the tires for, for a guy like that who you 
would assume is going to be treated as something like a bow cow is pretty important. That's also going to be a factor in the first round versus later round conversation for him, right? Because you get that fifth year. If he were 23 and was going to be, you know, 28 by the end of his rookie deal, maybe that's a, a turnoff because he's a running back and he's basically dead at the time he's 28. But being younger, you might see value in having that fifth year option for him. I could see an I could see an argument for the opposite in the sense that like one more year where you don't have to be burdened with the question of whether to sign him for a, a bigger deal is probably pretty useful for a position like that. Like getting that extra year means that you can more easily justify letting him go after that contract. <laughs> Whereas if you have a shorter deal and he's sort of like he's still more in his peak, it's it's harder to to pull the trigger on letting that player go. Interesting. It's funny that we're talking about this now after 15, 20 minutes ago, we were talking about like GMs just trade up all the time because they don't care what happens. And yeah, and that's three years. So we're talking a little bit about about both sides of our mouth, but yeah, that's totally fair in that sense. Yeah, you're right. But also in, in, if that's the case, then like the decision doesn't matter at all because we're talking about years that you don't exist for. We've, we've, we've done it. We've, we've reached the nihilistic nihilism portion of the, of the analytics conversation where nothing matters at all. Yeah. Everything is random. Naturally. All right. Let's get out of this a little bit. So the one way that I chose to look at players who have good statistical quality was just sort of like, we have a whole bunch of leaderboards on the SIS draft site. And I just looked for players who appeared in at you know appeared high on leaderboards the the highest percentage of the time so like the most the player who appeared in the 90th percentile or better on their positional leaderboards the most was Nathaniel Dell receiver for Houston who was is one of those players who just had like super elite target share type numbers and just had like crazy production and doesn't necessarily have the best like route tree didn't stretch the field a lot but just like got a lot of targets did really well against man coverage and we have him great as a, as a 6.4 which is like a solid grade but is not a top flight receiver but certainly from a productivity perspective he sort of plays like a top receiver and is, is very much the sort of player that you'll find in people will will be hyping in a couple weeks because oh it's this this guy's you know statistical profile suggests that that he's you know, undervalued in some way. I, uh, he's tough because, well, he's not really tough. I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm being diplomatic. He's, so he'll be 24 this in his rookie season. He's 165 pounds. He runs a four five and he was a small school guy. And his selling point before like the combine and everything was that he was a burner. So when you have, when you have this guy who is by NFL standards tiny and he's fast enough but not particularly fast and he's an older prospect and he's a small school guy i think that's i think there's a lot to be wary of there that could arguably offset the statistical profile yeah i think i think there's a chance that people like get stars in their eyes and see antonio brown and you know <laughs> i yeah the all of the things that you named are 100% like 
And and also it's worth noting, like most of our metrics are not only total points within our sort of like suite of metrics is accounting for quality of competition. And so, yeah, that's, that's one aspect that we're still working out in terms of how to blend the statistical profile with what you see on film. And there, you know, in running four or five is, you know, there's, there's play speed and the Cooper cup thing and whatever, like there, there is such a thing as a player outperforming what we can measure of his speed and agility, but it definitely, you know, we're talking about like trying to find certainty and trying to find things that align with each other. Like the, the fewer of these things that line up, the less likely it is to actually work out. Yeah. And I think you're right. There is a difference in how fast you are in underwear versus how fast you are running in in pads but it is also a lot easier to overestimate how fast a guy is when he is playing lesser competition yeah just based on on film yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I i have certainly been guilty of that in the past myself yeah i think this conversation is convincing me that our next off-season project or like early off-season project should be to or maybe like mid-season during the college season would be to have be, have the ability to basically adjust everything to be able to look at your performance within a more reasonable context because yeah uh, that's totally true and to whatever like you know you're not seeing a lot of like quality press coverage and and that sort of thing so yeah that's totally a factor and also it's one of those things that like if so i'm looking at this leaderboard of like how often players show it up in the 90th percentile or better. And he's like a full 10% higher in terms of like the percentage of his leaderboards that he was a lead in than the next guy at it, across all positions. And so like when you see something that's like that outstanding, it's probably not true that he's elite in that to that extent. And it's probably just like a, a, a series of conspiring factors that make it so that his stats are sort of and and it's probably a combination of of stats and skill the guy's not a scrub but like it's it's a combination of of opportunity and talent that sort of gets to that point yeah i think there's i think there would be a lot of value in being able to adjust the individual metrics that aren't intended to be like all-encompassing metrics the way total points is for quality of competition especially because i think there is a phenomenon in, in evaluation where there is not a lot of precision with which evaluators adjust their evaluations for quality of competition, especially because they're they they don't always have the context of like how good the opposition is, and it's it's probably very easy for not that I'm a pro scout, but it's very easy for someone to be like me. Yeah, I played at Houston. He's he's really a bum because all the guys he's playing against were bums, and there's definitely a lot more nuance. That I think the naked eye is not well attuned to in terms of accounting for that sort of thing. Yeah, like the naked eye, the human can understand it in a way that the numbers don't unless you force them to. But the human eye is not able to calibrate appropriately in a, in a way that we can at least like approximate with numbers, right? Like we're the kinds of adjustments that we're doing are a little bit like ham fisted at times where it's like in general, all players on this side of the ball in this conference or whatever look like this or wh- whatever level of, of granularity that we're looking to do and and or even just like in general this you know i this wide receiver was running against this cornerback and in general this cornerback is 
X quality, but like maybe he was having a bad day and like that affects what you, what happened in that game very directly. But like we would have a very difficult time actually adjusting for that kind of stuff. Right. And I think that's just the nature of nature of the sport, obviously with small sample size. Yeah. You know, we're talking about college kids. Like this is a 21 year old man. Like maybe his girlfriend dumped him or he, he, he did poorly on a test and he didn't not- get a lot of likes on his TikTok video. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, now we're doing the shaking our fists, get off my lawn thing. I, but I'm I'm just saying that these are younger people who are not yet fully mature adults, so they are especially susceptible to having bad days. Yeah. All right. So getting down to to a couple of other players, I'll just mention the the next two players that that I had sort of found were also wide receivers, Josh Downs from UNC, who we actually have a pretty solid grade on a six point seven. And then Charlie Jones from Purdue, who we do not have the same kind of grade on, a uh, 5.9, more of like a, a back-end type prospect. So that is sort of, th- this is the, the example, we sort of like run the gamut of players who we have a, a mix of film aligning with productivity downs, particularly is, is kind of notable in terms of hands production. He had the best route variety in the class in terms of like just the number of unique routes he ran. Although I wrote an article earlier this offseason suggests that that's actually not that valuable in terms of projecting. It's more about having routes that sort of like align closely with what gets run in the NFL. But definitely like a mix of, of productivity and, and quality scouting rates. And then Charlie Jones from Purdue had a lot of production running out wide for the Boilermakers, but really in terms of like elusiveness and yards after the catch numbers, like bottom of, of the class from that perspective. So it, a kind of interesting mix of productivity without necessarily like some, some of the numbers that we have that relate that we would think relate more to projecting skill. He doesn't necessarily grade as well in which, which actually would align with the sort of scouting report. So that's kind of encouraging in that sense. Yeah, I tied on to Jones a little bit. Coming from Purdue, where they ran a system where they threw the ball 60 times a game, and having Ian O'Connell, who's a six-year quarterback, certainly I would think some of that volume inflates yeah. some of those metrics on the leaderboard than what we had. Yeah, and some of the, I mean, a lot of well, a lot of it is per game at least, but like mm-hmm. per game is still not totally adjusted, right? So if you're if you have a, t- a ton of volume within each game, yeah, the difference between you and other players won't accumulate as much as it would over the course of the season, but it definitely would contribute to some extent. All right. So in terms of other players to talk about, James, you wanted to talk a little bit about another, we were talking about more quarterbacks, uh, Hendon Hooker. Yeah. So I wanted to bring him up a little bit. Obviously, there's been a lot of buzz around him lately coming that he has been cleared to start throwing again, according to reports. And there's reports out there that he could be ready for the season opener, actually, which seems a little optimistic, but I that's what I've been seeing. There's starting to be some first round draft buzz on him. And He's he's certainly coming in as one of the top quarterback candidates. Third in total points rating per play among the uh, candidates coming in. First in average at the target. Can get it done on the ground too as he's second in quarterback rushing total points per game behind Richardson. And then he's third in IQR. So there's certainly some overall metrics that might be able to get him into the first round. But some of the underlying stuff's a little shaky. In terms of that IQR number, he was first in IQR with no pressure. But he was 11th with pressure, which is third to last this past year. He's gotten worse each of the last four seasons, too, with a significant drop in his past season in the Tennessee offense. He's also tied for 10th on arm target percentage. So as an accurate quarterback, that's still not there. And he was tied sixth in their uncatchable ball rates. So some of the underlying metric stuff isn't great. And two, coming from a system with Tennessee, when he had Cedric Tillman and Jalen Hyatt 
two of the best receivers in college football, and, and in a system where you have a lot of in-system throws, a lot of half-field progressions, it, it seems like there might still be some work there to do with him. I, I don't see a problem with like a team trying to get him in the day two in the second round or like early third, but I don't, I'm not sure he stacks up as the first-round quarterback that some mocks are coming out to say now. I find it interesting. So, so the the projectable nature and and some of the stats that you were listing in terms of the pressure, not pressure stuff. The decline over years is interesting, especially for a player who you know, as Bryce was mentioning, like players have been in college a little longer, and 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 so you get to see a little bit more progression over time, and to see a negative pro- progression, it's not ideal. But what I actually have found is so. You're saying basically that he's not performing well under pressure, and that's something that that is going to be a problem when you get to the NFL, when the the quality of the pressure is is more extreme. And the funny thing about that is, at the NFL level, we generally find that not that performance without pressure is more stable than performance under pressure in terms of projecting year over year or within year and that sort of thing. You're you're able to trust the performance without pressure more, but between college and the NFL, we found that it, the inverse is true. That basically, that performance without pressure is less reliable in terms of predicting to the NFL, and performance without with pressure is more reliable, which is kind of what you're thinking. And it, it, it's sort of in line with intuition. Like the the meaning of of a clean pocket in college is kind of different than at the NFL, whereas the pressure like you are you're scrambling around you're dealing with uncertainty you're you're dealing with all these sorts of things and especially when we're talking about again young people and, and all that kind of all that sort of thing like you do learn something from how they handle adversity and you know we can talk about like grit and stuff like that as, as in in the real world of you know traits that predict performance better than other things that you might expect just sort of the ability to handle adversity so in that sense, I think that what you found is is really interesting because the performance without pressure would normally be something that you'd say like, oh, well, I that's that's the projectable thing. But from college to the pros, it's actually the inverse. Gotcha. Interesting. I think I I love the conversations around. I I find the top level quarterback conversations very difficult to to get a lot of interest in just because that you're sort of splitting hairs and you're not really going to have a ton of you're going to say oh this guy was really good in an offense and oh he played for uh, this other awesome school and this guy played for this other awesome school and and that sort of thing these back end of the first round type guys or 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 potentially dropping into the later rounds i find really interesting for exactly the, the the reasons that you were talking about like just kind of an interesting profile you have players who are really good that are around them sometimes but sometimes they have really bad situations you know the the Will Levis would arguably fall into this category if he if he weren't being if he weren't quite as toolsy. And actually, you mentioned Jalen Hyatt. He also showed up on the list of players who were super high on a bunch of leaderboards from a receiving perspective. Like was was a little bit lower in terms of like the the elite numbers, but he was you know in, in the top half of the leaderboard, like on almost every leaderboard. So definitely like something that does affect your ability to evaluate the quarterback in that situation. But like, you know, CJ Stroud is going to have similar questions. You know, the Alabama quarterbacks the last few years have had similar questions. And there's also something to be said for like throwing to players who are similar in quality to what you'll throw to it. So I think that it's probably 
that stuff you might be throwing away throwing out the baby with the bathwater by saying like oh the you know the quality of these these players was too good we we can't evaluate it but mm-hmm. yeah i think it's a pretty interesting conversation so i also wanted to i guess we will we'll end on a, on a bad note so to speak i kind of wanted to talk about sort of like the inverse of the players who are the the top performers particularly like it's not particularly interesting to talk about a player who is graded poorly and who has poor statistical profile relative to other draft prospects obviously these guys are all getting discussed as being drafted so they're all like pretty good from a college perspective but it is kind of interesting to see players who do not have the performance metrics that necessarily align with their grade like as an example, Peter Skaronsky, tackle from Northwestern, he's our number one offensive tackle. And from a performance perspective, like he's not in the top handful of tackles on basically any of our key leaderboards from an offensive line perspective. And that's with like a, a sort of little bit of an improvement in blown block rate over the course of his career and that sort of thing. And I fully acknowledge that from an offensive line, particularly a pass blocking perspective, like we don't have the metrics built out that we'd like to have to evaluate offensive linemen in a way that would really line up with what you'd get from a scouting report. But it is kind of interesting to look at that and just see a a player who's graded out as elite, who you're not seeing necessarily like elite productivity from, even though for offensive line productivity kind of means something different than from a running back. The, I guess, so the other players that kind of affect the way that we it's it's sort of an impact of the way that we've built the site. So one thing to keep in mind for the the SIS draft site is that all of the leaderboards that we show are for your platform season, your last season in college. So most notable for players like Jackson Smith and Jigba, who obviously had an unbelievable year a year ago and did not play most of this year. But also for players like Dontavian Wicks from Virginia, he shows up at the bottom of a lot of of the leaderboards on the receiving side and that Virginia offense kind of cratered this year but the year before he was outstanding and so you're if you're building in multiple years you do want to to make sure to like account for part of the reason why he is the prospect he is is because of the year prior to his last year but also you know what does it say when it when a player sort of declines in that way and obviously if you're a receiver and you're dependent on the quarterback the offensive line that sort of thing it's harder to feel confident that a downturn is meaningful for the receiver as opposed to just the offense in general but it is something to sort of keep in mind when looking at some of these leaderboards the the one thing i'll say real quick about skaronsky is that even though he is not in the upper percentiles of the leaderboards there is something to be said about that because it's a relatively weak class this year depending on his placement in within those leaderboards it might be some cause for alarm just based on the the weakness of the class in general that he is not at least somewhere close to the top yeah that's where i think and i don't know that we could do better because i think that like you you're only choosing among the players in this class so like if you were to grade everything or or, you know rate all your stats relative to an overall population like that might be not that informative but yeah, that, that is something to keep in mind also when looking at this, is that we're looking at only within the context of the class that you're sitting in. And so you might be a top player relative to the peers that you're working with, but the you know you might not be a blue chip type player like we've had 
top tackles the last couple of years that have, that have come out that have been, you know, discussed in the top three picks type of players. But yeah, so I will I will mention before we head out here that one of the players that does appear on the the bottom of of the list that I had created, which is basically like the a player who shows up in the lowest percentage of leaderboards, I should say that he shows up in the top half of the leaderboard the least times is Will Levis from Kentucky. And Matt's talked about in, in previous episodes of the podcast how his his eval on Levis is more optimistic than he expected. But he in general, you know, there's there's accuracy issues, but we exist in a world where Jalen Hurts and Josh Allen have improved their accuracy. And so there's clearly something in terms of just like player development that teams are able to do that probably is the sort of thing that that Levis would be sort of like on a program to to develop that that skill and he also existed in an offensive context that was really suboptimal so and and has the sort of athletic traits as well that really do make it feel very similar to a Josh Allen eval less so with Hertz because Hertz had sort of talent around him but Hertz was also not you know as a prospect coming out he was not considered the same kind of prospect as Allen uh, and I guess Levis to some extent doesn't have the, the same sort of like elite arm talent as part of his his toolkit. But it is that's that's the key conversation with Levis, right? Like his his production, there's there's nothing in his maybe not nothing, but there's there's not a lot in his production that makes you believe that he's worthy of one of those top picks at quarterback. But you have to trust your scouting staff and and probably more relevant like your player development to be able to get him to where you need okay we'll we'll sign off and thanks everybody for listening to the off the charts podcast brought to you by sis and for james weaver bryce rossler and our producer justin stein we'll see you next week 